Malcolm Honline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Joins us Friday mornings at 7.40 a.m. Eastern Time for the weekly update. Mr. Honline, a good Erev Yontav, a good Erev Shabbos, and welcome back to JM in the AM. And it's good to be with you, and we look forward to a joyous Chag, one that everyone will be healthy, that everybody's going to wear masks and take care inside, outside, no matter where, and that um, we'll emerge from this with a Yantav that was truly full of Simcha. As you know, the, that's the hardest mitzvah to fulfill, we're told by many uh, Rabbanim about Samach uh, So this year, despite everything, we have yeah. to be Misameach and celebrate. <laughs> and if it's usually a challenge, then this year, boy, is it a challenge, or at least it could be. Well, talk about October's surprise. Uh, one month before the election, we learned that both the President of the United States and the First Lady of the United States have attested positive for a coronavirus, and uh, obviously so many things uh, between the uh, the stock market, which is anticipated to have its problems uh, later on today, uh, reaction from the world, uh, what it does for the campaign and the election, what it might do, frankly, in terms of the schedule for certain things we've expected, uh, vote on the uh, next Supreme Court nominee, etc. I mean, obviously, this happened hours ago, and the news became available hours ago. But I'm sure you agree that uh, there are so many things now that are completely up in the air. Right, but I think there there could be an overreaction uh, to it. First of all, the stock market. I think it's only the futures are down less than 500 points. Uh, market up over what almost 27,000. So it's not a, a, a dramatic. Uh, collapse of the market, as some had uh, said, and we don't know yet what will happen during the day with traders. It depends a lot on on the president and first lady's condition, um, you know, because of his age and he's overweight, et cetera. He has a lot of uh, things, but uh, there's no reason to expect that, that he will necessarily, you know, have a, such a terrible adverse reaction. And the, the, um, you know, the concern, obviously, is going to be there for, for his health. Hopefully, it will be a message to everyone about the need to take care that this strikes everybody. And, uh, you know, the warnings about some of our communities that have been issued have to be taken seriously because otherwise there will be more dramatic steps taken and everyone will be upset and saying, why is it happening? So we've had advance warning, but it's not, uh, as the media has been so disrespectful and focusing. It's, it's really uh, horrendous. Some of the videos that we've seen of, of, of camera people standing, waiting, and only focusing on the, those without the mask and not reporting the tremendous increase that I saw in, uh, in our communities, in, in people wearing them, and nor reporting on the other communities where, uh, where there has been limited use or, or not as uh, complete as it should be. None of that is an excuse. Everybody has to do it. The president, obviously, uh, his campaigning will, will take a hit for this. But we saw that Joe Biden did well when he was in the basement, so it helped his <laughs> campaign. So maybe the president, you know, being in the White House, uh, it'll help. But people shouldn't rush to conclusions and, and make dire predictions about what this means. Right now, it doesn't mean anything other than that they're sick and they, they'll, right. they'll get the best treatment in the world. I, I get that. But, but, but a couple of things came to mind when, when I first heard the news. The first was that I get the, the, um, how you're putting it, that people will now realize anyone can get it. 
But I think there's also a flip side to that that a lot of people are going to say, oh, my God, like, like a fear is going to set in that if the president of the United States can get it with his security, with his medical staff, with his, you know, with the care and concern that's given around him 24 hours a day. Oh, my God. You know, and I think it might increase the fear in the country of people uh, contracting the disease. Do you agree with that? No, not necessarily, because if you I mean, the reaction is, is possible. But when you look at it realistically, you know, he's out, he's in crowds, they had the debates, they had the, the plane where he has all these aides on there, uh, and, and it was initiated by somebody else. It wasn't that he got it, but he got it from one of the people close to him. Right. Right. So, you know, he interacts all the time with people. Most of us have been much more limited and don't interact with uh, For those of us who are safe, people. right. Those of us who are careful and safe, right. That's right. true. Uh, and the other thing that came to mind was we, we have seen world leaders who have, you know, suffered pretty bad cases. And again, we wish him only the best. But if he has a, a Boris Johnson type episode, remember, he went to the ICU. Right. It seemed it seemed from, you know, from thousands of miles away to us that there was somewhat of a panic in British society. I mean, if, if that type of thing happens over the next week to 10 days, then, uh, you know, who knows what that could do to the whole campaign process? Well, it could get a sympathy vote. It could be. Uh, it could be that uh, that basically you're right. It's unpredictable because it's not something people have experienced or we have had that to, to, to deal with. But there are laws in place. What happens uh, if uh, somebody has to be replaced even at the last minute? Right. It's a confusing process. I think if it had been you know months ago, then it would have been easier when it goes to the party. Uh, this obviously would be much more difficult, and there are electors in the end who who, who make the decision. It's a very complicated situation, um, but you're right; it adds to the uncertainty, and that's that's the problem that we have today: is that people feel things are not predictable, that that there is a runaway train, that there's you know security situation, safety situations, and this only adds to the anxiety, which is. Not something we need. And you saw the prime minister here in Washington a couple of weeks ago. You were there with him, and you know some people were a little, you know, were rolling their eyes that the Israelis insisted on certain precautions. That you know, what would it look like, especially with Israel going through what it's going through? What would it look like the prime minister, you know, came back with Corona, a trip that they wondered if he should take to begin with? Now you see that those precautions were <laughs> were really, you know, on, on solid ground. Yeah, he did put out a, pre- a statement uh, wishing the president. In equivalent terms, but he. But you're absolutely right. And in the end, the Israeli delegation, by and large, did not wear masks. Wow, I didn't um, realize that. Wow. And and there wasn't a separate pod. They were in one area, but I think there were there were great precautions taken about the the delegation. Generally, that was not the case, and there wasn't distant seating. There wasn't. Uh, there, there were. Um, I, I can't give a percentage, but not a majority right. wearing masks. Are, are you okay, thank God? I am, thank God. I mean, you, you, may, you may have sat there a little worried, I would guess, no? A little we, bit. Yes, but I sat with people who were masked right. and who took precautions, and we did not go into any of the you know, gatherings or anything uh, because it's, it's just too risky. It, right. it, it, there's, no, there's no predicting this thing. 
And we've that, seen it a, in shuls. We've seen right. it come about. And now with some chastorah coming, I mean, you see the rabbanim and the warnings that they're issuing. I hope people take it seriously. I mean, there are rabbis who don't want walking around for hoshanas. There are rabbis who don't want uh, walking around for akafas. There are rabbis who are suggesting possibly, and I don't, I, I, I want to say this carefully because obviously people should check with their own rabbi, about not saying kahelis and shul because it's a long time for people to be together, you know, extra time, so to speak. And we see how deadly this is. That's the lesson from this whole thing. You know, there have been pandemics, and there have been a lot of flus, and there have been a lot of things that, you know, people have gone through in our lifetimes. This thing is so deadly. It's, and, and again, I know I use the word deadly, but obviously the majority of people don't die from it. But you get my point. In terms of contracting it, it just looks so easy to get at this point. And if you look at the, for people over 60, over 65, right. certainly over 70, and as they get up, but, but now it is striking younger and younger people. And thank God they don't have as adverse a reaction, but they do. They're getting it, and there are people who have died from it who are young, even children. So nobody is immune from it. And and it's you know there's a, a phenomenon that people, um, many people even, don't don't take the warnings as seriously because they don't believe it. They don't mm-hmm. believe the numbers because they've seen con- contradictory figures or whatever, and they mm-hmm. don't believe it. Believe it. Mm-hmm. Have you know, 150,000 dead or whatever, it's real. Look what's happening in Eretz Look how many people have died and, and are really sick. And the Rabbanim who are sick now, just in the last two days, three days, here and there, you know, take it seriously. Rabbi Kanievsky was just diagnosed as a positive case of coronavirus, and and, and hopefully the, the one good thing, if there is such a thing, uh, with this situation is that, I, you know, more and more, I think we're feeling it, as you pointed out, we're feeling it in our community, even the young people, I think, are actually wearing masks now, even really young uh, people. But in Israel, this will have, hopefully, uh, you know, w- will be a jarring effect on people as they see Torah giants who are suffering from it. They will understand the importance of wearing masks and taking precautions. Plus, on top of that, I'm sure you saw the statistic, I think it was a Jerusalem Post thing, that 40% of all cases in Israel are from the, so to speak, Haredi community. Again, not a criticism because of the way of life, you know, that a lot of people, a lot of kids, a lot of people in, in very congested areas, but that's a startling statistic, so that has to be considered as well. It does, and, uh, you know, hopefully we'll see over Yonta that the numbers oh, start going down. I hope so. Because yesterday, 9,000 cases. Yeah, that's a lot. And you see that the region, Jordan's now with an increase in cases. I mean... You know, everybody locked down, and everybody, <laughs> including us, everybody locked down, and we were essentially in our homes, Yantav, et cetera, Pesach, Shavuos, et cetera. And, you know, we thought that would have a, you know, that would be a really good precaution, you know, the worldwide lockdown. But now it looks like we're just, it, it's all restarting. This whole thing is just starting again. And it's a shame that we got to restart the lockdowns again. Who knows where the end is in sight for this thing? Um,. What do you think of the debate? I know that, I mean, if you want to call it a debate, I know that there are people, there are people who now are rethinking the entire format of the, of the traditional presidential United States debate. Uh, what were your impressions about the two candidates on Tuesday night? Well, I, I don't know anybody who thought it was a great event and, and something that you could be proud to have your children watch. Um, it was, um, you know, people blame Chris Wallace, people blame the two candidates, people blame the format, people blame everything. But it, it didn't serve, I, I think, anybody well. It certainly didn't serve the process at a time when I think people need that more confidence in the leadership and in the 
process that we processes we engage in. So it was, um, and and I think that there were a lot of substantive issues that could have been more fully discussed. The president's record on a lot of issues which he did not uh, discuss: uh, black unemployment, Hispanic employment, uh, security issues, uh, and many where the I think the vice president didn't strike any of the blows that he could have. Um, you know, every pundit has a different assessment of it. Right. And one thing that everybody I think is consistent is that it 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 was uh, disturbing uh, in many t- at many points. I think the debates are very worthwhile. I think this year it's important to have them. Uh, I hope that they they will come up with some means of of having a much more meaningful and, and in depth debate. So you don't think it's worthwhile? Serious question, not joking. You don't think it's worthwhile to cancel the remaining debates? I do not think so. I think that. I mean, personally, first of all, I'm a political junkie, so I love. Right. <laughs> you, I love you, this. you need those but, couple of nights, right? <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's the best entertainment, certainly. <laughs> but the. Um, no, I do think we, we need it. I think we see, need to see the two candidates who can operate and how they operate under pressure, what their vision is, what the, you know, um, the vice president separated himself from AOC's green plan, plan and some of the other things. So we see that there there are, um, you know, there's a lot you learn, e- even if it's between the lines. Yeah, I hear that. But there's no discussion. There's no issues that come up. And by the way, even as they stump, and even as they answer questions sometimes from the press, there never seems to be substantive answers, discussions, statistics, uh, theories, uh, discussion of relationships with other countries. It just it, it, these things just seem not to come up. And in the old days, excuse my you know, my my uh, uh, you know sounding like an old guy, but in the old days that was the focus of those press conferences and debates was real discussion, statistics. Bringing up theories and and and, and approaches, uh, especially when when speaking of you know governing in relationship to other countries, and it just we have none of that now. Like it's not like we have some of it, and the other stuff's dominating. It seems to me we have none of it at this point. Yeah, and we're spending a lot of time on it too, and that uh, this guy, which is is the issue that it diverts attention and the coverage. You know, so many things happened this week that are are really incredibly important. Uh, on all the issues that we discuss every you, week, you know, before you because you may you may tend to, to to get into a list of them, which I appreciate. But I I do want to start with the UN, though. Could you do that for us? Could you tell us if anything substantive, both regarding Israel and otherwise, came from this year's UN session? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, the answer is no, because nobody was there. Everything was done virtually. Uh, so even Netanyahu's speech was not like it was effective. It, it had very limited effect. The coverage of all these things is very limited. The uh, Netanyahu did make a headline w- with his uh, giving the address and citing a place in Beirut right. where they are uh, assembling weapons and obviously Hezbollah, but Iranian-backed, uh, and giving a warning and, and talking about the explosion in, at the Beirut port. It essentially put the onus on the on the uh, people in Lebanon, saying to them, "Listen, guys, it's not that you don't know. Now you know, we know, and if something happens there, you know you're to blame because you didn't hold your leadership to account. You haven't taken the steps uh, necessary, and the 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 um, you know we know that they've been trying to develop these precision guided missiles, uh, the, these kits that they get from Iran to enable them." 
they have 150,000 missiles, but most of them just shoot one randomly and don't end up where they where it's intended. The at the same time, we've seen a lot of unrest in Lebanon and even people talking about the possibility under circumstances that they too would join uh, process. But there's there's uh, there was another development where the Lebanese and Israel agreed to have the U.S mediate maritime border talks, which is a very important issue because of the oil discoveries, energy discoveries in, in the uh, eastern Mediterranean. Did that happen Where, only because of the aftermath of Israel, UAE, etc.? This might have happened anyway. No, this was was happening. Could it have been a bit of a cover for them? Maybe, but this has been in the works for, for a long time. But the fact that they turned to the United States to do it, and you know there are very sensitive issues involved. It also involves the border with Cyprus, uh, which will come up, and as you know, we still have unresolved issues between Israel and Lebanon at Mount Dove in the vicinity of the Sheba Farms. But there, in in the actual uh, Mediterranean, uh, it has it limits their ability to develop, and it, there's every reason to believe that there that there, the geological studies show that this is potentially a very rich area, and Total wants to drill for in, in on the Lebanese side. So, and there are precedents for how you share and how you can work it out. But the very fact that that we have talks is good news, and and it could benefit the Lebanese economy very much, and of course benefits Israel if they are right. able to drill in the broader area. And remember, you have a lot of Turkish pressure uh, on Beirut. They did not want him to engage in this, and they are you know in a conflict with Cyprus and. They've been uh, very aggressive, Erdogan, about the, in the eastern Mediterranean. It came to almost a showdown, but French warships, Israeli, Greece, Italy, others steamed in, and they backed off, and now they withdrew this uh, their ship that was uh, looking for uh, exploration. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program, heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio. Around the world, the web, and AchimSingle.com, and the Single Network, and, of course, on the beloved NSN app. So... Does any of this lead to Lebanon getting closer to be on that list of countries Israel would consider having normalized relations with, or none of this is is, is leading them in that direction? Well, Israel and, and Lebanon long had a good relationship. Remember the good fence? Remember when Jamal became president, they were interacting, and um, I mean, we hosted them as, uh, in an event here in New York, and Israelis were there, others were there. Um, but if and there's an every Iranian... reason to believe that Lebanon and Israel should be good partners and trading partners, other things. But as long as Hezbollah right. is the dominant force, it's not going to be. It's it, it isn't going to be as likely. And we know that Hezbollah is still very active. It's less popular. Uh, you know, there were more explosions in um, in uh, different areas in Lebanon too since since the big one. Um, but the the, the uh, arrest of a cell in Saudi Arabia tied to the IRGC and to uh, Hezbollah, which acts as a front for for them. So uh, Lebanon, Lebanon is not shaking the moniker of proxy for Iran anytime soon. It, it's the people of Lebanon would, but the, the problem is that the government, is, it, first of all, the government's in collapse. The prime minister was unable to form a government. Right. Uh, the the uh, There's no one in control right now. Aoun, the president, uh, is not 
he was, he's a Christian who was pro-Israel and then turned anti-Israel. Now he's sort of somewhere in the middle. But Hezbollah is less and less uh, popular, of course, blamed for the explosion and many other things, but also for the cost that they brought on the people and all the missiles that are in people's homes that are targets today is because of, of their pressure. You know, that's what I'm saying. I said earlier, Nahum, that, that we saw realignments this week that are really quite remarkable, not just you know, the cell that they uncovered in Saudi Arabia with uh, all sorts of weapons, including uh, explosive bricks that are, are are typical of what Iran has done in Yemen and with the Houthis and with others. But if you see some of the, the and, and the declarations that came out, the Iranians much more blatant this week because they felt they could or they had to to divert attention from the positive developments. But they said any country that opposes the Zionist regime, we will get involved. But they denied that they have forces anywhere in Syria, Iraq, Yemen, Lebanon. They denied it all. They just said it's not true. But they made admissions that they are another one of the former head of the IRGC says that, that they are providing stuff to Leb, to Venezuela, but everything is advisors. In Syria, advisors. In Iraq, we only have advisors. We gave gas to, Vez- to Venezuela and received gold bars carried back to Iran by plane, which they denied at the time. And I spoke about it here on the show. And they were, you know, the Iranians saying, oh, no, we didn't take all. They took the gold from, from a country that's in economic collapse. They sent another shipment of, of oil there this week. So we see that under the cover of all that is happening, we're seeing much more aggressive stuff going on. You see uh, Erdogan's terrible statements about the, the dirty hands on Jerusalem, saying that Jerusalem is our city, meaning they're making reference to the Ottoman Empire's role in in, uh, in Jerusalem. But a, a, an interesting side, and in Ahum is the is that the Syrian foreign minister attacked Syria, uh, uh, Turkey so viciously called it one of the main sponsors of terror and in the country and in the region, guilty of war crimes. Uh, they cut water to more than a dozen towns that where they have uh, where they occupy which they occupy in uh, uh, Syria. And he, he says that they are the financiers of terrorism, the sponsors of terrorism. I won't go through the whole speech. People should look at it. But it, it is a remarkable statement by uh, a top uh, Syrian uh, talking about them moving um, uh, terrorists and mercenaries from Syria to Lebanon, to Libya, which we have discussed, mm-hmm. and and that it's an outlaw regime. And then the Turks came back and used sim- similar language against the uh, against the government uh, of Syria, which they were both uh, allied once. So you see the three-way competition: Iran, Turkey, and Russia, which I've talked about many times, but. People don't take it seriously. They don't understand. There's three, these three guys are cooperating. At the same time, they fight each other in Libya. They're on opposite sides in the Karabakh, which is a very explosive situation with our ally Azerbaijan. The Armenian ambassador was recalled from Israel because Israel sent weapons to, to Azerbaijan. The situation in Yemen, the situation in Lebanon, the situation in Iraq, all of these places, it's so explosive. That's why you need strong leadership. And to your, back to your earliest point, why... You know, any any sense that uh, there's not people in control and people watching situations, which anyway is the feeling that the Europeans have abandoned everything and that the only hope is, is and, and that puts more emphasis then on their hope about Israel. That's why a lot of the Arab countries and more of them considering it, um, you know, because they see that, that the rest of the West is absent.
What could the what what could a future alliance look like? You talk about uh, Iran, Turkey, and Russia. I mean, are they going to get to the point where there's even more cooperation between the three of them, or they're so um, hell bent on staying independent and and each of them leading the region, you know, themselves? That we likely will not get into a scenario like that. They each have hegemonic goals in the region. Russia's achieved a lot of it by getting a warm water ports, the ports in Syria, airports and naval ports. They're active in Libya. They want to control the flow of energy. They will work with the, the other two whenever it's convenient, especially against the United States. The same is true of Turkey and Iran. They hate each other. They, they are, are in competition in many circumstances. But when it, they, they have the Astana process, which brings them together, and the only purpose is to keep the United States out of out of uh, Syria. But I, I'm showing you that if you take each one, the three of them are in various combinations of being of fighting each other. In Libya, Turkey and Russia are on opposite sides. In in Yemen and in all these places, they all play different roles and shifting roles. But the thing that unites them is that these guys are aggressive, that they're moving ahead. Iran, we know much more about their uh, nuclear process and the information that the IA has so far given out, and we know that a lot of it isn't uh, public. But they, they are moving ahead. They, they weren't supposed to have these advanced centrifuges, and they can enrich much faster than, than before. And, we don't, and there are still things that we don't know, even places that we may not know. Look, the PA is talking about working with Hamas when we know that they're rivals and they hate each other, and, and yet they, they're coming together, even talking about elections, which I would be skeptical about, but it is possible that they, they could eventually have it. Uh, it's, it's only the 14th year of their four-year term, so you know it's, the election is almost 10 years overdue. But we're seeing so many shifting sands right now, and that's why it requires the full attention because any one of these things could explode into a, a regional conflict in, in Nagorno-Karabakh. You have Turkey on one side, Russia on the other. You have Iran who will seek to, to exploit the situation. You have Qatar and others playing a role in Israel. Each of these situations is potentially very significant and having a broader impact than just a border conflict. By the way, there's a report now that uh, the Vice President, Mike Pence, has tested negative for coronavirus. And the reason I point that out is simply because if you're looking for somebody who might have no choice but to replace the president on a campaign trail, obviously, I guess, would be him. I mean, frankly, if the situation was reversed, I think, you know, Harris would be a more effective replacement than for Biden than Pence would be for Trump at this point. But, you know, they're not going to have much of a choice, frankly. So I guess uh, he'll take on more of that role, plus he has the vice presidential uh, debate that's going to be coming up. In light of all the political um, uh, um uh, the political situation that you just described in that region, has Bibi ever been under more pressure, uh, let's say, you know, in recent years? Because the demonstrations seem to be, you know, pretty potent, somewhat out of control in terms of demanding that he resign. Uh, plus, of course, the, you know, the, another election could be looming. I don't even, I, mean, I don't even know what the, the potential is for that right now. A couple of weeks ago, you did say to us that, uh, you know, if these deadlines do pass, we may be facing another election. Has he ever been, and, 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 and with the legal situation as well, has he ever been in a more precarious position or even with all this opposition to his leadership, he is going to survive fine if, uh, you know, assuming people continue to elect him prime minister? Survive and survive fine is a big gap. Um, 
you know, you can't beat somebody with nobody. And right now, there, there is nobody who really mounts uh, a credible challenge to him. Uh, some combination could, uh, whether Bennett will support him or is will not support him, or there's some other combination that could come up. But I think what your your, your fundamental question is right. BB has both the internal and the external challenges. While in the region, Israel is doing better with the new peace agreements and with the changing attitudes atmosphere. Um, uh, but at the same time, the the demonstrations, the unrest, the COVID questioning, you know, the handling of the COVID thing, thinking about, you know, going till the end of the year, let alone longer with uh, the crackdown with people, which has as much as a psychological and huge economic impact on Israel, which was doing so well uh, before this hit. Uh, you know, he has this dangerous cocktail of challenges mm. that, that are facing him. And also sometimes it's just too long that you got to know yeah. when the, that fatigue, we talked about it. Um, but, you know, he is still the strongest leader that uh, seems to be on the scene right now. Maybe that's not what they need, but he certainly. Uh, and, and then when you look, there's nobody who has, if there was an election today, Lee could would still be the number one party. So elections don't seem to make a change. It just creates more chaos and more divisions. And uh, I think the outcome would be unpredictable at this point. Uh, even more chaos. It's unbelievable what's been going on the last few months. Uh, yeah, I meant to ask you this, and uh, before we wrap up today, I want to make sure to ask you. I know, I know the story goes back a couple of weeks, but and I believe it was a Jerusalem Post. It may even have been an opinion piece. You saw that Saab Arakat was uh, was hired by Harvard. Um as a what was his? I've been trying to see what his yes, the counselor to the students or something. Yeah, I'm trying to see his advisor. But anyway, anyway, he was hired by Harvard. And in this article, it says that that literally the PLO's chief, chief negotiator, as he's known, um, uh, it becomes the oh here it is senior leader in diplomacy, <laughs> senior leader in diplomacy. Um, and this happened after. They got a, they meaning Harvard got a two million dollar donation from the PA. Is that really it? I mean, does does the PA feel it's so important to have someone like this on an important campus in the United States that literally they buy their way in and Harvard falls for it? It happens all over the country where you have foreign countries and others pouring money into it. Saudi Arabia did for a long time. Hopefully now it'll be a much more moderate influence, but. Um, this has been a major problem across the country. It's very much more visible when it's, say, Barakat and Harvard. Yeah, but Harvard. But Leila Khalid speaking at San Francisco State, which, as you saw, right. because of the pressure of lawfare and other groups to, to um, end Jewish hatred now, um, they, they were able to get Zoom and then Facebook not to, to drop it, to deny the platform, to give this uh, person, and, and they asked uh, San Francisco, can you, t- can you attest that she is not associated with any um, or, or terrorist organization? So, and they couldn't. They couldn't verify, but they would give a platform to somebody like that. Yet when Sharansky and others came, they remember they wouldn't, they didn't let them speak in San Francisco State, was eventually sued, did sign an agreement. By the way, we did have at NYU uh, a lawsuit that was brought this week, and they reached an agreement with the Dep- U.S. Department of Education and the Office of Civil Rights there, that um, um, they cited numerous instances of anti-Semitic activity on the campus. So the agreement, uh, which is the first since the presidential, when did the president issue the executive order? I think in November, last November. 
uh, and he added anti-Semitism to the force of discrimination covered by Title VI. So they kind of either lose all their federal funding, but they opted to revise their non-discrimination, anti-harassment things to include anti-Semitism mm. as factors that can't be discriminated against. And at the same time, at Columbia, you had a vote yeah. of 60, 60 to 27, something like that, to, to recommend universities divest from companies promoting, um, profiting from, or promoting, I think, uh, Israel's policy towards Palestinian people. And this is, you know, they disregard all the ethnic cleansing of Jews. They disregard the whole history that was behind this. The president of the university came out very strongly this time. Bollinger, who in the past did not, uh, came out strongly against it. And, um, you know, said that this vote, first of all, was done remotely, and we don't know what it truly reflects in terms of the actual numbers where the human body stands. But nobody should dismiss it. It is a troubling trend Malcolm, that we see. Malcolm, we have a lot of Colombian Barnard graduates in this audience. Say something to them, please. Let the university know what you think. Uh, you should uh, acknowledge what President Bollinger did, but demand that the university take steps to change the climate at Columbia. There is nobody in Columbia who will deny that there's a strong anti-Israel and anti-Semitic uh, climate and and tendencies there that does not get addressed with the seriousness that it should. Uh, maybe some of these events will will help be a breakthrough. But we see that the the thing they pay most attention to are the lawsuits and the legal action. But at the same time, the students at Columbia have been organizing. They have groups in students in support of Israel and others that have been effective. And they we have to mobilize and activate. The problem is that most of the students who who support Israel are inactive or, or indifferent for many others. We have to change it. This is a, a very uh, concerning situation. BDS is going to strike even harder and uh, in the coming months, and they, they take advantage of the situation in our country, this sense of uh, you know the, the extremism, the divisiveness, the partisanship that we see, the loss of the political center, the, the tendencies towards um, uh, greater acts of anti-Semitism. Um, these are, are things that all the bad guys take advantage of, and it's the left, and it's the right, and it's the minorities, and it's the Muslims. It's all coming from all of these sources, and we have, thank God, many groups working on it, and uh, we're trying to bring them all together so that we are more effective, but people doing stuff online that has been effective, and identifying and, and uh, highlighting some of the anti-Semitic uh, activities, but it's it's so vast the network of anti-Semitic sites and and um, actions and groups that are working, and as soon as they wipe out one, they go after another. But we are we are becoming more technologically capable through the efforts of some remarkable people to um, to identify and to be able to fight this. Malcolm, join me in. Uh advising everybody in our community worldwide to be very careful about gatherings during the upcoming holiday of Sukkot. A time, by the way, this might be the week of the year uh, where we really uh, take advantage of the ability to gather with everybody traditionally, but this year it's going to be very different. It will be different. We have to enjoy the Yantav. Uh, we have to think about it in the longer term, not just you know what happens in the one day or two days also because it's now coming into flu season and everybody should get the shots yeah. um, uh, you know and this, the anti-vaxxers and stuff should should lay back this year I think for sure that uh, if um, that that people take the precaution uh, it's a double whammy and 
We know that what's happening in other countries, that it comes back. People are getting it a second time for all those who thought they had immunity. There's no guarantee. There's no assurance. We see it in Israel. We see it here. And uh, there's no age uh, limit that uh, prevents people from getting it. So just take the precautions. Nobody's saying people can't enjoy the Antiv and they can't have a proper celebration of the Antiv. But we have to think of it in the broader context as well. well and, and all the Rabbanim are issuing these warnings today. No question about it. And, and some very uh, serious um, uh, decisions as well when it comes to uh, uh, different things happening over Yantav. People should pay careful attention to them. Um, we will reconvene, please God, two weeks from today. Uh, Shabbat Shalom and Chag Sameach. Chag Sameach to everyone and a good Shabbos and only Simchas. Friday morning, JM and the AM. It's Erev Sukkis, everybody.